Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we're talking about Bayanong, a man who first helped reunite a kingdom as a leading general and military figure, only to watch it disintegrate with the premature death of his king, before reuniting it again himself, and in doing so, creating a much more long-lasting kingdom. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. You can email me, almostforgotten at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 5, Episode 9, Bayanong, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Bayunong was born in the first half of the 16th century, in the western part of Southeast Asia. Today it's Myanmar, and three centuries prior to his birth, it was the Burmese Empire, known as the Pagan Kingdom. But in the late 13th century, Kublai Khan led a Mongol invasion from his new kingdom, China. The Pagan Empire collapsed as their vassal states broke away, and when the Mongolian and Chinese influence receded, multiple successor states sprang up. The region was further destabilized with the migration of the Shan people, and it ended up being a scattered group of smaller and larger kingdoms, rather than any sort of empire. The Shan states in the north of today's Burma were small, but they often raided the Burmese states to the south. Although the country was not united, Burma was somewhat insular, at least geographically. According to Victor Lieberman in his article Reinterpreting Burmese History, Quote, surrounded by a horseshoe of highlands on the west, north, and east, the Irrawaddy Basin opens on the Bay of Bengal. Long-distance transport and communications across these upland zones have always been restricted compared to movement within the Irrawaddy Basin or between the delta and ports around the Bay of Bengal, unquote. Although we tend to think of river deltas as densely populated areas, it was in fact Upper Burma where most of the population lived. Drier, less subject to heavy monsoon rains, and less malarial than lower Burma, the upper parts of the Irrawaddy Valley were really the center of the Burmese population. But it too remained a part of a fragmented country. Lieberman continues, quote, The Irrawaddy Valley remained politically fragmented for 268 years after the Pagan Empire fell. Even as the interior and coastal regions warred with one another, each region was itself split into contending principalities. Thus, five kingdoms appeared, with the grandiloquence of each ruler's titles inversely proportional to the size of his petty domain, unquote. The kingdom of Ava in central and upper Burma held sway over more of the region than most of its neighbors. But in the first half of the 16th century, a confederation of Shan states united and successfully shook off Ava hegemony. They then invaded the Ava kingdom, a few of the Shan states, including Monyan and a kingdom centered on the city of Prome, essentially put puppet kings in charge of Ava and ruled much of the territory themselves. To the east of Burma lay the Ayutthaya kingdom of today's Thailand, and further east of that was a diminished Khmer empire, well past its zenith under Jayavarman VII. The Malacca Sultanate fell to the Portuguese in 1511, and the Europeans had begun to set themselves up in the region, 
especially in India. The Mughal Empire, which sprang up in 1526, was the biggest power in India and conquered much of the northern part of the subcontinent, but the Vijayangara Empire still held sway in the south. The Ming Dynasty had been ruling a united China for 150 years, and to their north and west, the Mongol Empire had fractured into several khanates. Moving west, the Safavid dynasty ruled much of modern Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq, overthrowing the Timurid Empire, which had declined significantly since Tamerlane's time, and the incredibly named Federation of the White Sheep, a western Turkic tribal confederation, also known as Akkoyunlu. The Golden Horde had fractured into various khanates, and they were being swallowed up by the Duchy of Muscovy. Their leader Ivan would style himself the Tsar of all Rus in 1547, rather than just the Grand Prince, signaling the birth of the Russian Empire. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania ruled territory from the Baltic to the Caspian Seas, and it held a personal union with the Kingdom of Poland, although they didn't officially unite in a commonwealth until 1569. To their south, the Great Ottoman Empire ruled over Anatolia and the Balkans, and conquered Egypt in 1517. Suleiman the Magnificent became Sultan in 1520, and in 1526, at the Battle of Mohach, he defeated the Hungarians and effectively destroyed their kingdom. West of that, France was a great power. Francis I ruled Gaul, as well as much of northern Italy, while Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor, and basically ruled the rest of Western Europe, other than England, which was ruled by Henry VIII, and Portugal, which had become a colonial power and was responsible for almost all European presence in the East. To their south, the Songhai and Mali empires fought for control of Western Africa, although by this time the Songhai were in decline. And in the east, the Ethiopian Empire was beginning to face incursions from the Ottoman-backed Adal Sultanate, who would displace them for a time in the middle of the century. In the Western Hemisphere, the Aztec Empire ruled over much of Mesoamerica, and the Incans held sway over the Andes. But Cortes arrived in Mexico in 1521, and Pizarro conquered Peru in 1533. In North America, the Pueblo-building cultures of the Southwest were well-established, and by this point, the Iroquois Confederacy held sway over much of the region to the south of the Great Lakes. Back in Southeast Asia, at the same time that the Shan states were destabilizing and taking over Ava in the north, further south, in the region of Tongu, a king named Mingyanyo had similarly gained some independence from Ava. He consolidated power in the region, raiding and conquering some of his neighbors. He founded a new city, at the time called Ketumati, but later called Tongu, in 1510 and settled there as his new capital. When he died in 1530, he left his small kingdom to his son, Tabin Shweti, who at the time was only 14. This devout Buddhist would eventually be the leader of a great Burmese empire, with a little help from his buddy Bayanong. Bayanong was probably the same age, also born in 1516, and he was probably elevated to a position of prominence fairly quickly. It's possible that his parents were close allies of Mingyinyo and were high up in the administration, although there are later stories that contradict this. But he grew up with Tabin Shweti, and the two were likely close friends as young children. These two princes inherited high positions at a young age, and soon one became the king. 
Soon after this, Bayanong became Tabin Shwaiti's brother-in-law by marrying the king's sister. Now, some of the stories suggest that it actually began as an illicit affair, an offense considered treason, and Bayunong gave himself up rather than fleeing. Tabin Shwaiti decided, after much deliberation, to allow a marriage and gave Bayunong a title. This story may depend on Bayunong actually being a commoner despite growing up in the royal household, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But what's almost certainly true is that Bayanong did become the king's brother-in-law and was 100% loyal to him. Tabin Chwedi found himself in a kingdom with many refugees as prominent Burmese from the Ava kingdom had been pushed out of other regions into his territory. This gave him a source of manpower to help expand his kingdom, one that he used, mostly because he feared that if he did not, his land was in danger of being completely snuffed out by the Sham states in conjunction with the Hanthawadi kingdom that ruled over Lower Burma. Tongu sits on the Sitong River, a navigable waterway that's much smaller in comparison to its neighbor to the west, the Irrawaddy. The Irrawaddy is significantly bigger and easier to navigate, making it essential for trade. It also had much better agricultural lands than the Sitong. This helped Tongu stay relatively remote and probably allowed for the survival and strengthening of the Tongu kingdom, despite the upheaval in most of Burma. Believing that the time had come and he either needed to attack or be attacked, in 1535, Tabin Shweti invaded Lower Burma, which was not actually one of the Sham states. But he must have seen the Hanthawadi kingdom, as the kingdom of the Mon people were known, as easier pickings. Its leadership was not particularly strong, and he saw an opportunity there. It may have also been richer, as the Indian Ocean trade increased in the late 1400s and early 1500s, Lower Burma was able to take advantage. Lieberman, in his article, Europeans' Trade and the Unification of Burma, wrote, After taking the throne of Tongu in 1531, he chose to attack Pegu rather than Ava, because its wealth made it a more inviting target, unquote. With the Portuguese showing up, it also allowed Tabin Shwedi to incorporate European mercenaries as part of his army, which both he and Bayunong were happy to do. Mercenaries could be troublesome, but with wealth coming in from trade, they were kept happy with fixed salaries, and unlike local levies, were directly controlled by and loyal to the king. He soon annexed the westernmost provinces, which made up the Irrawaddy Delta, He had difficulties taking the Mon capital, Pegu or Bago, located nearby on the Bago River, east of the Irrawaddy but west of the Sitong. So he came up with a plan to trick their king. First, he hired mercenaries with guns, be they Indian Muslims or Europeans, so that he could better fight his enemies. Then, in 1538, he asked for negotiations, and two of the Hanthawadi kingdom's best generals were sent as part of an embassy. When they returned back to their kingdom, Tabin Shwedi arranged for a letter to be found by the Mon court that implicated the generals in a potential coup, gaining governorship over the territories he was about to win. The king had both men, loyal followers and able generals, executed, which served to completely dishearten the defenders. Many fled, including at some point the king, and the city was soon taken without a battle. Tabin Shwedi set up Bago as his new capital and incorporated the Mon leadership into his growing empire. 
Bayunong was probably at this siege, but he was certainly at the next big battle. Prom, where the king had fled, was the next target. Prom is located on the Irrawaddy and was a major city in Mon territory. Marching straight from Bago to Prom was not realistic because of terrain, so the fleeing Mon forces were split. Taban Shwedi decided to take the bulk of his men and head up the river, chasing the Mon king, sailing up the Irrawaddy north. He sent Bayunong marching across the delta in an effort to pursue the rest of the fleeing Mon forces. Leading what was essentially a scouting party, Bayunong stumbled upon a larger Mon force. He had built rafts to cross the river and was ready to surprise them and attack when he received a message from Taban Shwedi to wait for the main Burmese force if he encountered any enemies. Or maybe that was always the instructions, but either way, he decided if he waited, he'd lose the element of surprise. So he sent a note to the king saying they'd already gone to battle and won. When one of his men said, hey, after all this, if we lose, the king's going to be pretty mad. According to G.E. Harvey in the History of Burma, quote, Bayunong answered, if we lose, why, then we die here, and who can punish dead men? He destroyed the rafts after his men had crossed. His officers remonstrated, saying, The enemy are ten to one, and we shall never get out of this alive if you destroy the rafts. Said Bayunong, Friends, we have got to win now. Unquote. Ah, once again, the old burn the ships trick, this time with actual ships. It never fails, except when it does. But it worked this time, and the battle at a now lost town called Nongyo, was a resounding victory for Tongu and Bayunong. This was their first major victory head-to-head. They had taken Bago by subterfuge, after all. But the overall Tongu force could not take the city of Prom. Tribes from upriver came to aid the city, and Taban Shwedi and his army were forced to retreat. But the Mon King could not get the Sham Confederation or anyone else to launch a counterattack against the Tongu. He tried to raise his own army, but soon he became sick and died. There were still, however, remnants of his kingdom to deal with. In 1541, Taban Shwedi, along with Bayanong, and a Portuguese adventurer commanding a force of 700 of his countrymen, took the kingdom of Martaban. Martaban, now known as Matama, was a previous capital of the Hanthawadi kingdom and is on the eastern edge of the Gulf of Martaban, north of the Malay Peninsula but the Portuguese artillery was useless against the city's earthen-backed ramparts. However, after a seven-month siege, the city was taken after one of his new Mon commanders, better at naval warfare than the Tongu, was able to defeat some defending ships on the river and establish forces on the city's waterfront. The lord of this city was executed, and his treasure, including a significant store of luxury goods and precious metals, since this was a trade hub, now belonged to Taban Shwedi and the Tongu. To finally complete the conquest, they went back to Prome. Again, some northern tribes came down to help, but this time the Tongu were prepared for the onslaught. Bayunong was sent north of the city and ambushed the relief army. It was defeated, and then another army, this one sent by the king of Arakan, was similarly defeated. This time, they were duped by a letter forged by Bayunong allegedly coming from the king of Prom, and they marched right into a trap. The western Arakan kingdom of Mrao'u had also sent a naval force to try and help out, 
but on hearing about the defeat of their land forces, decided to turn back. At this point, the Tongu just needed to starve Prom out, and it took some time. But with no relief army able to help out, after five months, it did surrender. In the meantime, Taban Shwete rewarded Bayunong handsomely for his services. Besides jewelry and other gifts, he named his lieutenant the Crown Prince, making Bayunong the heir to his kingdom. In 1546, Taban was crowned King of Bago and Upper Burma, creating an empire from his small kingdom. They marched to Arakan, which is on the northwest coast of today's Myanmar, but were unable to take the capital city of Mrao'u and were turned back east. That small coastal kingdom remained outside of the Tongu influence for good and only was incorporated into Burma two centuries later. While Taban Shwete was expanding his kingdom, the Ayutthaya kingdom of Siam, today's Thailand, launched raids into Dawe, which is further down the coast from the city of Motama, really at the northern extreme of the Malay Peninsula. They were taking advantage of the Tongu army's absence to try to capture land they felt was Thai. Taban Shwete and his force returned and set about making plans to invade Thailand. Much like with his invasion of Lower Burma from Tongu, Taban Shwedi probably wanted to invade Thailand for economic reasons. The Portuguese, in conquering the Malacca Sultanate, had shut many Muslim traders out of the traditional sea-based trade route between India and China. Owning ports and way stations that helped move goods on the overland route across Southeast Asia was becoming more and more lucrative. The merchants would still take to the seas whenever they could, so that meant going westward, they would come on ships from China and go to the Gulf of Thailand, then cross through Thailand and Myanmar before emerging to hit the water again in the Andaman Sea or the Bay of Bengal, rather than make the journey down to the Straits of Malacca now that it was in Portuguese hands. A large Burmese army marched down to Thailand on their war elephants, as well as 400 Portuguese soldiers and Bayunong's 13-year-old son in order to conquer the Ayutthaya kingdom. Harvey writes, quote, The advance was up the Adaran River, through the Three Pagodas Pass, and down the Meklong River, to Canburi. Thence they struck at Ayutthaya, driving at the Siamese at Yadzapthane, near Intaburi, unquote. Lots of names to unpack here, but the Three Pagodas Pass is a cool-sounding place that is a well-trafficked spot and remains on the Thai-Myanmar border today. The town mentioned first was probably today's Kanchanburi in western Thailand. The armies met, and the Thai king was in the thick of battle. He was hard-pressed, and his wife, the queen, tried to ride up on an elephant and rescue him. She put her war elephant in between his and an enemy's, but Queen Suryo Thai was killed by the commander of Prone. She is a somewhat legendary figure in Thailand today and there's a memorial statue of her on an elephant outside of the city of Ayutthaya today. The Thai forces rallied and were able to fortify the city well enough that the Burmese couldn't take it. Ayutthaya had impressive walled fortifications and defended against the attack with effective copper cannons imported from China. Despite their initial victories, the invaders were having a hard time of it and left their siege of Ayutthaya after a few weeks. They tried to take another city but were unsuccessful. The Ayutthaya army began to harass the retreating Tongu, 
but Tobin Shwetty set up a trap for them while feigning a retreat through a mountain pass. He captured one of the Thai king's sons, as well as his brother and brother-in-law. He traded them in exchange for safe passage out, and once again the overextended Tongu retreated back to their home territory. Upon his return, Tobin Shwetty, supposedly under the spell of a Portuguese favorite in court, became increasingly unstable. He drank excessively, becoming an alcoholic, and his ability to rule effectively ended. He had men executed for reasons traditionally not deserving of it, and Bayunong had to secretly commute their sentences. Bayunong became alarmed and implored the king to straighten himself out. The king said, no, I'm good, and why don't you manage the kingdom from now on for me? Don't bother me with affairs of state. So, just like that, Bayunong essentially became the leader of the kingdom, although Tabanchuete would still sometimes show up to events. As Bayunong took the reins of state, people started saying maybe he should just be the king already. But he said he wouldn't do it, telling the vassal lords that he will continue to advise the king and faithfully carry out his orders, and that together they would make sure the kingdom doesn't fall apart. The king then went to Pantanao, in the Irrawaddy Delta region, to live under the care of Mon attendants. All this suggests that, even if Bayunong wasn't going to seize the throne, he had already made the moves needed to have the power of the king. How much of this was given up willingly by Tabinshuete isn't known. In 1551, a rebellion among the Mon people popped up, led by a man named Ta, one of the sons of the former Hanthawadi king. This was no doubt fueled by the shocking change in behavior of the once highly disciplined Buddhist king Tabinshuete and it inspired more rebellion. Bayanong gathered forces to help put the rebellion down. But one of Tabinshwedi's Mon advisors, Sawtut, also decided it was a good time for revolt, and he was able to lure him out of the city on a hunting trip. He waited until he had the king alone with only Mon attendants. The story says it took three months for this to happen, and he had his head cut off. Sawtooth then had the Burmese attendants that were with them killed. This all may seem awfully convenient for Bayanong, but it's hard to implicate him in this conspiracy, because the Mon Rebellion was very real, and they soon captured Bago, the capital, at the time called Pegu. They pushed the commander, Bayanong's brother, out, and they declared Sawtooth as their new king. Thus ends Tabanshweti's story, but Bayanong's is not over, which is why this episode is about the latter not the former. Bayunong was now sort of king by default, but his kingdom had disappeared. The local commanders of cities declared themselves to be kings of their small territories. And very few cities would let the new king in safely. Perhaps weary of the constant warfare under Tabanshuete, or just taking advantage of a Mon leader to latch onto, many joined the revolt. The new king, along with a different Portuguese commander, who had served with him in the invasion of Thailand, made for Tongu. They had a tiny force, and Bayunong had to march through territory controlled by the leader of the rebellion who had just styled himself as the new king of Bago and of the Mon people. His hope was to rally Burmese locals and turn to retake the Irrawaddy heartland. At this point, it seems that Bayunong didn't hold any territory. Even his homeland in Tongu was under the new Mon king. It may well be that they didn't know Bayunong was marching to claim his kingdom, or that they weren't in a position to resist just yet. 
But Bayunong's march to Tongu was entirely successful. As he marched, his army grew, and towns came over to him. He ignored or went around Mon armies in his way, and seems to have been allowed to march to Tongu. Perhaps his reputation was so great that everyone figured if he wasn't attacking them, just let him pass by. Outside of Tongu, he began to raise an army, and loyal members of the empire flocked to him, bringing their forces. He attacked Tongu, which was under the command of his half-brother, and after a few months, they fully surrendered to his new army, and he was formally crowned. He forgave his brother because he was his brother, I guess. He then turned around to retake the rest of his kingdom, this time heading northwest to Prome. In 1551, another brother, the one who had fled Bagu, helped him capture Prome by crashing through the town's gate on his war elephant. He moved further north and was able to capture Pagan, the capital of the ancient empire which had ruled a united Burma from the 800s until the late 1200s. This was a big deal. His next target may have been the Ava kingdom, but there was trouble in Bago. Perhaps that kingdom was raiding his retaken territory, so he turned to retake the city. He reached Pegu slash Bago in early 1552, and Ta, one of the usurpers, awaited him there. Ta had started the original rebellion and had eventually defeated Sawtut, the one who had beheaded Tabinchwedi to control Bago, and what they hoped would be a restored Hantawadi kingdom. The two leaders, Ta and Bayanong, fought each other in single combat, which was not atypical at the time. The two would-be kings quickly found themselves locked up with one another, elephant to elephant, I guess, until Bayanong was able to withdraw enough to mount a charge of his. The other elephant's tusk broke, as did the rebel king's men who fled along with the usurper. The sack of Bago was brutal and Bayunong oversaw the slaughter of men, women, and children in the city. With Bago back in the hands of the Tongu dynasty, the Mon mostly fell back into line. The usurper tried to fight, fleeing from town to town in the delta, attempting to raise forces. His small group fought on, ambushing forces where they could. He was hunted relentlessly, his family was captured, and he hid in a village, giving up all pretense of being anything but some poor random peasant, why do you ask? He supposedly married a local and then told his new wife his secret. She told her dad, who then told the village officers. He was taken, marched through the streets, and killed. At least that's what the official record says. It could have really been just some poor peasant that they grabbed to put some finality on the revolt. I don't know. With the Tongu kingdom under his control and pacified, Bayunong now set out to expand it. His first target was Ava, which is to the north in Upper Burma, past Pagan. He sent some of his forces up the Irrawaddy River, while others marched overland. He made quick work of Ava, who asked the neighboring independent kingdoms for help but received none, and it was captured in 1555. Lieberman recounts a story of the capture of Ava from a primary source, whose author may have been there, which highlights how Upper Burma may have had less exposure to gunpowder than the more internationally connected people of Lower Burma. Quote, the bombardment was now unleashed, ringing the town with fire. The reports of the cannon and the muskets reverberated like Indra's thunderbolts. Those within the town had to take refuge in holes, for there was no other refuge above ground. Day and night succeeded each other unheeded as detonation followed detonation, 
till it seemed a man's ears would burst. No defender dared expose so much as a finger above the battlements. After five days of siege, the town could resist no longer, and an assault finished it. As the walls subsided in rubble, elephants, horses, men poured, unquote. It wasn't just the guns that allowed him to succeed so quickly. Lieberman points out that the massive infantry, as well as the elephants and cavalry, that Tangu could bring to bear after consolidating the south, was like nothing that had been seen in centuries. The following year, Bayanong started a major conquest of all of the major Shan states. He gathered a massive army, and perhaps because of this, he didn't meet significant resistance. Harvey lists 13 different groups or kingdoms or polities that he conquered over the next four years, until 1559. His control may have been somewhat ephemeral, they weren't necessarily integrated tightly into his kingdom, but they sent tribute and acknowledged Tongu as their suzerain. And without a full integration, revolts were common. From the early 1560s through the mid-1570s, he had to march his army in pursuit of rebellious chieftains at least three times, possibly more. He took over these conquered territories in the same way we often see conquerors do. Those that fought against him were sold into slavery. He deported people from their homes in order to populate other regions. He relocated artisans and craftsmen from Shan territory to his capital. In 1563, he marched southeast and took Kampangpet and Sukhothai in today's Thailand. While on campaign in the Thai borderlands, though, some of the very dissatisfied relocated peasants began a rebellion back home in Bago, which now served as his capital. To the former Ava king, now part of Bayunong's court, apparently it was more appropriate to try to help crush a peasant revolt than to side with them. He helped rally the Burmese lords in their king's absence. He drove the rebels out of the city, although not before much of it had been burned. When Bayunong reached the city, he, quote, discarded the trappings of kingship and walked on foot with the men in his jeweled sandals, unquote. He then set out to capture the rebels and made quick work of that. He threw a few thousand in cages and was preparing to burn them all alive, which apparently was the customary thing to do. Monks gave the people food and eventually convinced the king to only kill the 70 ringleaders, sparing the rest. He had marched with his predecessor into Thai territory and suffered significant defeats. If you recall, they only made it home safe after capturing some very high Thai nobility. Bayunong decided it was time to make a go at conquering them again. Apparently, the Thai king had as many as seven white elephants in his possession, although probably only four were still alive at this point. These were seen as good luck, so Bayunong decided to go take some. He then took his massive army to the capital of Ayutthaya, and despite Europeans fighting on both sides, it seems the cannon the Burmese-allied Europeans were using scared the Thai army enough that their resolve wavered. Alternatively, they may have just realized that Ayutthaya couldn't withstand the siege it was under much longer. And so, despite a high number of casualties in the campaign, the Tongu forces were able to get the submission of Ayutthaya. The price was high for the Thai kingdom. According to Harvey, quote, the terms were the surrender of the four white elephants, the captivity of the king and some princes as hostages, the presentation of a daughter, the cession of Tanasarim shipping tools, and an annual tribute of 30 war elephants. Bayunong left the Siamese king's son to rule as a vassal, 
with a Burmese garrison of 3,000 men, unquote. He took people back to Burma with him with their hands bound, more forced relocations, and some of these may have been Thai actors and dancers who introduced a new style of song and dance to the Burmese court at the time. He had taken control of the capital of the biggest and strongest kingdom in the region at the time, and this was a big deal. He went back to his capital at Bago, and according to Harvey, he, quote, entered the city in triumph, many wagons going before, loaded with idols and inestimable booty. He came at last in a chariot with the conquered queens loaded with jewels at his feet and drawn by the captive princes and lords. Before him marched 2,000 elephants richly adorned and after him his victorious troops, unquote. According to Lieberman, demand in Europe was increasing the price of spices as much as threefold. And he cites another scholar, W.H. Moreland, who estimates over 18% of India's eastern trade at the time touched his ports and he made money every time they did. He also got those four white elephants. He then built a massive palace in Bago with gold roof tiles and statues. Called the Kanbazathadi Palace, European visitors marveled at its splendor. Unfortunately, it burned down in 1599, and today there's only a replica in its place. The captured Thai king was allowed to live in relative luxury in a nice house in the capital, although he was presumably watched after quite closely. Still, Bayunong had a disgruntled vassal state with the Ayutthaya kingdom in Thailand, and other Thai people did not submit to him. In what is today mostly East Myanmar, Northern Thailand, and Northern Laos, he had to deal with the Lan Na kingdom. In 1564, he marched another massive army, this time east rather than southeast, to Vientiane, He easily took the city, but he had to return to the region time and time again to try to defeat rebellious chieftains. He lost thousands of men to starvation in the hills of Linzen trying to crush a guerrilla army. He often came into these territories with a big army. The populace ran to the hills or forests if they could, and Bayunong would capture the nearest city. He'd take many from town back to Burma in chains to become slaves, if they made it that far, and he'd leave an army garrison but there was no real authority once he left. The local guerrilla leaders were often able to keep doing what they were doing, and these lands ended up not having much government at all. In 1568, the Thai king who had been captured four years earlier and had been living as a monk was allowed to return home. He quickly determined the kingly life was better than the monastic one, and Ayutthaya was thrown into rebellion. Bayunong took another army down to retake the city. It was defended with earthworks built up outside of the city walls, which was a good way to greatly reduce the effectiveness of cannons of the time. Over the course of a ten-month siege, Bayunong threw his men at the walls, and the losses piled up. The king was apoplectic at the inability to take the city and executed many of his officers for the perceived failures. But then the Thai king, turned monk, turned king again, died, and his son took over. Apparently, the Burmese convinced the new Thai king that his leading commander was the cause of the entire conflict, and if he would surrender him, they'd be satisfied and would call off the siege. The Thai king did as he was asked, but this was a ruse. Bayunong was not leaving. Even without the old king and their best commander, the defense of the city was too great. 
Bayanong ordered one of his best generals and oldest commanders to attack an impenetrable part of the wall, probably not for the first time. When the general did not push his men hard enough, seeing it as a suicide mission and not wanting to push men to their quick and unhelpful deaths, Bayunong had him executed immediately. Still, this motivation did not help them take the city. Eventually, a Thai captive escaped and made his way back into Ayutthaya. He was allegedly given command of the garrison, and he opened the gates for the Tongu army, and after 10 months, the city was finally taken. Now, this story leaves a little bit to be desired, so I'll just speculate that this man was a leading general or nobleman, perhaps the very same one that the Thai king had foolishly surrendered earlier in the siege. This would explain why he had the ability to open the gate after returning to Ayutthaya. It might also help explain why he was given a lordship by Bayunong after the battle, although he wisely chose to take that lordship somewhere other than the city he had just surrendered. The new king of Ayutthaya had to show his proper subservience and was marched back to Bago, but he died on the way. This was certainly not purposeful. Bayunong brought in doctors to try and help him on the journey and had them executed when they couldn't fix him. His kind treatment of the previous king suggests it was a better status symbol to have a captured king living under your protection in some luxury, rather than just lopping off their heads. It also probably illustrates the dichotomy between the godlike reverence for high nobility and the complete disregard for the lives of almost anyone else. His kingdom was under the sort of control that much of Europe had been seeing over the last few centuries. He controlled only a few districts directly. The rest were under the watch of vassal kings. Even Tongu, his dynasty's ancestral capital, was now just a regional capital under another's direct supervision. He also tried to standardize a legal code, bringing in monks and other officials from around his kingdom to try to create some sort of uniformity. This included a standardization of weights and measures for the kingdom. Part of the reason that he was able to govern effectively over these different people is that he was not overly biased towards his own people. As already mentioned, the captured king of Ava soon became enough of an ally that he helped tamp down the revolt in Bago. His leading general was a Mon lord named Bin Yadala. But as is typical, the life of the nobility probably did not reflect the life of the common folk. And so, the Burmese did make life in general more difficult for the Mon, and probably other resettled populations as well. At some point, Bayunong sent forces to help an ally king on the island of Sri Lanka and built a temple there and funded the upkeep of a relic, one of Buddha's teeth held in the kingdom of Kandy. Apparently, at some point, the Catholic Portuguese decided a Buddhist relic tooth was too blasphemous, and they destroyed it. But apparently, this one was fake. Later, Bayunong would claim that the real one actually ended up in his court. The same claim would be made by rival Sri Lankan kings. Bayunong also had embassies sent to treat with Akbar, the emperor of the Mughal Empire, who Harvey writes, quote, was probably the mightiest monarch in Asia, and his palace at Fathpur Siki was one of the wonders of the world, unquote. Although Harvey notes that the Mughal records do not make any note of any visitors from Burma. Bayunong connected Burma more to the outside world, and the Irrawaddy became a more prominent trading destination under his rule. He had a very small number of officials in charge of trade in Bago, and while they did charge a fee, 
they were considered honest by the Europeans. There were merchant warehouses, and Bagu was an impressive city. Harvey quotes from a Venetian merchant who describes the intricacies of an audience with Bayunong and gift-giving, but marvels that, quote, he hath not any army or power by sea, but in the land, for people, dominions, gold and silver, he far exceeds the power of the great Turk in treasure and strength, unquote. He styled himself as an ideal Buddhist king and did his best to support the Buddhist religion in Burma and beyond. Constant warfare, and almost as constant victories, had brought great treasures and magnificent buildings to the Burmese kingdom. But it also brought death by the thousands, and more so to the peasants who were forced to fight for Bayunong. And others died from starvation. The same men who were supposed to be tending fields were those that had to go try to conquer enemy lands, which is precisely what happened during the famine of 1567. Bayunong died late in 1581, with an empire that stretched from what is northeast India today through all of today's Myanmar, with the exception of the Arakan coast in the northwest, most of today's Thailand and Laos as well, and the southwest region of today's Yunnan province in China. His empire, managed mostly through vassal kings, went into decline after his death. Their loyalty was dependent on him, not on the Burmese state. And while his son Nanda inherited the throne, he did not inherit their allegiance. Several sub-kingdoms rebelled, and while Nanda was able to reign in some, like Abba, others, such as the Thai Ayutthaya kingdom, were essentially independent through most of his reign. By the late 1590s, the empire had collapsed, and in 1599, Bago was sacked. The dynasty ended, but Bayunong's line lived on. Another one of his sons actually was a viceroy or governor at a city in Upper Burma, south of Mandalay, called Nyungyan. That's where his name comes from. As power dissolved from the court in Lower Burma, Nyungyan took advantage and eventually declared independence. He soon ruled the Ava kingdom, and by his death in 1605, he had consolidated much of Upper Burma under his rule. His son and successor, Bayunong's grandson named Anuk Petlun, further reconsolidated his empire. He was killed in 1628 by his own son, who only lasted a year before Anuk Petlun's brother, Talun, captured Bagu and executed the new king, his nephew. Talun, another grandson of Bayunong, ruled until 1648, and over these 40 years, the Nayungyan dynasty, sometimes called the Restored Tongu Kingdom, stabilized the region so much that even the constant conflict with Thailand ended after peace treaties. The kingdom went into decline in the 18th century, and the dynasty which sprang up reunited a fractured Burma after only a few decades, built on the administration of the Restored Tongu Kingdom, on most of the non-Thailands that Bayunong had managed to conquer. According to Harvey, quote, his life was the greatest explosion of human energy ever seen in Burma. From his teens till his death, he was constantly in the field, leading every major campaign in person. The failure of other kings who attempted the same conquests is the measure of his ability, unquote. It is not that surprising, then, that the military rulers of modern Myanmar revere the great general. His rule in Thailand was based on conquest, as it was almost everywhere else, but his memory there is still respected, so it may have been largely benevolent after the conquest. 
First a general, then a warrior king, he also united the region in a way it hadn't been before. He updated legal codes and added more modern administration to his land. He ended the two centuries of attacks upon Upper Burma by the Sham states and incorporated them into Burma. Over two decades, Bayanong helped Taban Shwede turn the small Tongu kingdom into an empire. He then restored that empire after his king's assassination, reigning himself for another 31 years. He created what is believed to be the largest empire in the history of Southeast Asia. It collapsed after his death, but quickly reformed around his heirs, and thanks to Bayanong's conquest and administration, the Tongu dynasty would rule over Myanmar for nearly 250 years in total. Next episode, we'll finish up Season 5 by moving west to southern Africa. There, we'll find a leader who was born right around the time Bayanong died, and who also had to deal with the Portuguese. But thanks to smart diplomacy, playing various European and African entities off of each other, and abilities as a military leader and warrior, she was able to maintain power and de facto independence for her kingdom in the face of European colonial expansion. Thanks for listening. <laughs>